Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Tim Flannery. Tim Flannery is a mammologist and paleontologist. He was the chief commissioner of the Australian Climate Commission and chairman of the Copenhagen Climate Council. He was named Australian Humanist of the Year in 2005 and Australian of the Year in 2007. And he's currently a fellow at the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this episode, we talk about the Glasgow Climate Change Conference and where the world is at with respect to our carbon reduction goals. We talk about the trade-off between industrialization in developing nations and reducing carbon emissions. We talk about whether we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction. We discuss whether climate change is making natural disasters worse. We discuss the efficacy of lifestyle changes like becoming a vegetarian and much more. So without further ado, Tim Flannery. Okay, Tim Flannery, thank you so much for coming on my show. It's a pleasure, Coleman. So uh, before we get into uh, The Climate Cure, uh, which is your, your latest book and the general topic of climate change and the environment, can you give my listeners a little sense of who you are, how you came to care about this issue? Sure. Look, um, Coleman, I'm a scientist. I, I started off as a paleontologist. I spent, I guess, the best part of my career in the Pacific Islands, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and uh, West Papua, Eastern Indonesia. And through that area, I, I, I started to see concerning trends. You know, I noticed that the high mountains I was working on, uh, the tree line was rising all over the region. And so um, I eventually realised this was evidence for climate change. And about 1999, I decided I had to do something about it. All of the biodiversity I was studying uh, was just not going to last if climate change you know, kept on accelerating. So about that time, I changed career, switched career to climate. And uh, in 2004, I wrote a book called The Weathermakers that was uh, pretty popular globally. In, in 2007, I became Australian of the Year and then I was um, Australia's first climate commissioner. I ran the Copenhagen Climate Council for uh, the UNFCCC. All of, so I've had a pretty long history now in, in climate change. And uh, about eight years ago, I set up a not-for-profit in Australia called the Climate Council, and that's where I still am. Uh, we give high-quality information about climate change to Australians uh, so they can make the, the decisions that, uh, that are required. Yeah, so obviously your main context is Australian policy and so forth. But, uh, you know, obviously I, I have an international audience on this show, but I'm, I'm also an American. And this is one of those issues that affects the whole world um, to, to varying extents. And I guess this is a good place to start is the, um, the pledges that have been made just a, a few months ago, I think, in Glasgow. Um, can you talk about what the hopes were for this latest meeting uh, and, and what the result was? Sure. Well, look, the, the Glasgow meeting actually only finished about a week ago. Um, 
and I was there through the whole meeting. And it was interesting. I, I went in a little bit doubtful about how much progress had been made. But at the end of the meeting, it turned out we got a really good outcome. Um, there was a series of side agreements that were really important. One dealt with coal, about 40 countries signed onto an agreement to phase out coal. There was another one about methane, which is a very important uh, greenhouse gas that acts in the short term. Uh, and then there was an agreement to protect forests. And, and so all of those were good. Um, in the meeting itself, we saw some really interesting things happen. Uh, India signed on for a, a net zero target for 2070, so it's quite a way out, but it's the first time they've ever done it. And if you add up all of the pledges that were made at that meeting, it looks like if they're honoured, you know, we could at, at cap warming at about 1.8 degrees above the pre-industrial average. So that's the first time it's been below two degrees. So we've had quite a lot of progress made at the at the Glasgow meeting. Not enough, but but quite a lot. So I was pleased with the outcome. So I, I always struggle with how to think of these verbal pledges that don't really have teeth, because you know, on the one hand, if America or China or India or any of these huge nations pledge to cut something and then don't do it, nothing happens. But on the other hand, uh, you know, based on the, on the Glasgow meeting, people were really fighting over the specific language, right? They, like there was China and India asked for a phasing out of coal to be changed to a phasing down of coal, which suggests that the, the specific phrasing and the pledges made do hold some sway. So how do you think about these, these pledges that are made without real teeth? Look, every agreement that's ever made starts with words, you know, and that's just the nature of any political agreement. Um, you know, if there's an agreement between you and me, Coleman, we might have a contract and we end up, you know, if anything goes wrong, we could go to court. But that's a long and tedious process nobody really wants to get involved with. Um, so, you know, what I, the way I see this is that people set their own targets they pledge to meet those targets. And if they don't meet them, it's sort of, um, it's, it's bad news for them and the people they represent because they can't even keep to their own targets. Nobody's imposed these targets on them. This is something they've said they're gonna do, you know? So for them then to fail to meet that target, it, it doesn't play well politically and nor does it play well internationally. And, you know, the world is moving ever closer to dealing with this problem in a holistic manner. So there's trade deals that are being um, brokered at the same time. There's various other agreements that are being brokered. And if you fail on a target you've set yourself personally, then you obviously lose credibility when it comes to all of these other deals. So I think that um, just making the pledges is really important. And it, it actually liberates people to act. I mean, you know, so in the US, you've got a, a target, I think it's a 50% reduction by by uh, 2030, I believe it is. I have to check that. But um, you know, everyone involved in the US now, all the energy companies, all the businesses and others have got a target they can work to meet. And that, that is hugely important. Yeah, so this, uh, this other constant problem with the world's effort to combat climate change is that certain countries totally industrialized before this issue was really on all of our radars whereas other countries began industrializing right around the time and therefore began becoming wealthy and escaping poverty right around the time that we were realizing that, you know, we're making the entire earth hotter by doing so. And so what do you make of the problem that a country like India faces where we are asking of them 
we're sort of asking them to stunt their development in a way that uh, we, you know, we in America and in Europe and Australia didn't have to. Look, I, I don't think we're asking them to stunt their development because um, clean energy now is much cheaper than, than uh, fossil fuels. Mm. And um, so they have a development pathway available, which is a cost-effective one that means developing clean technologies. Now, there will be some costs for India, and there's a, definitely a, a social justice issue. So, you know, already we're seeing some impacts on India through, um, you know, ex extreme heat waves, floods, melting glaciers, all these sort of things. And that has all come about as a result of emissions released many years ago. So there is a need for some sort of compensation or some sort of um, recognition of this by developed countries to help the developing countries to cope with the consequences of climate change. And the negotiations include this loss and damage concept that deals with that. So that's sort of outside the development pathway. I don't, I'm not so worried about the development pathway. It's there for everyone to do. I think part of loss and damage might be, you know, offering um, some, some low cost funding to allow that development to accelerate. But those things are being worked out through this uh, COP process. So, um, so your book is called The Climate Cure. What is the cure? Well, the cure is very much what we did with COVID. You know, the same, you've got to, when you're faced with an emergency, you've got to do three things. You've got to stop the threat getting any worse, don't you? Or the emergency getting any deeper. That's the first thing. Then you've got to deal with the damage the emergency's already caused, you know, and, and we have to do that. And third, if it's a medical emergency like COVID, you need to develop a vaccine. You need to develop a means of actually getting rid of that problem altogether. So when it comes to climate change, those are the three steps we need to take. The first one, make sure the problem doesn't get any worse, just means cutting emissions year after year, so moving to clean energy. That's a big part of making sure the problem doesn't get worse. The second thing is the emergency room. Have we got a big enough emergency room to deal with all of the consequences of climate change? So we have to make sure that our medical systems are up to treating everyone who's harmed. Uh, by heat waves and so forth. We have to make sure our firefighting services can fight the fires, these mega fires we're seeing now. We have to make sure that our flood mitigation programs are all up to date and ready to deal with this much more intense climate we're dealing with. And you know, that's a, that's a big package there just by itself. I mean, you think that, you know, all of the pipes in New York were built to deal with flooding from a previous climate, a, a much less intense climate. So those pipes will become overwhelmed unless they're replaced with larger diameter pipes. That's just one small illustration of sort of, you know, adapting to, to, to what, what's already happened. Um, so the emergency room is big. It also has to include um, protecting biodiversity, um, protecting our forests, protecting our coral reefs, um, and doing what we can to make sure that species don't go extinct as a result of, of, of the changing climate. So that middle bit is a very big bit for government to deal with. Um, the third aspect is um, developing a vaccine, you know, and we can develop a vaccine for climate change in a sense because the, the climate that we evolved in, the climate that we experienced until recent decades, was actually the result of um, the Earth system. I mean, the, the world's forests and the world's oceans by drawing down CO2 um, helped create that climate. So if we can restore the Earth's forests, restore the function of the oceans, we'll have a very powerful tool to restabilize our climate and to make sure that we can uh, we don't see a further deterioration of the conditions that we all live in. Yes. Yeah, so um, I told you, as I told you before we started recording, 
and I'll remind listeners now, many months ago, I had Michael Schellenberger on, who's a, a critic of the, I said, the mainstream consensus on climate policy uh, among, among scientists. And he made a mix of interesting points and, and claims I found misleading. Um, and part of, this is part of the reason I'm having you on is to sort of relitigate some of those claims, um, both the interesting ones and the ones I found. Uh, to be misleading. So to start with the the one that was interesting to me was the 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 idea that it's a myth that we're in the sixth mass extinction. This is something I've heard um, many people say, and this relates to your expertise of of biodiversity, if I understand. So is there an agreed upon definition for a mass extinction is is one question. Are we hitting it? And then third, just what is the impact? Regardless of that question, what is the impact of climate change on on our biodiversity right now? Sure, yeah. Well, look, Coleman, there is there is a biodiversity crisis. That's absolutely certain. Some people argue there's a sixth extinction event, and what they mean by that is that this extinction event that we're seeing on Earth is as large as the extinction events that have characterised the past, such as the extinction of the dinosaurs and that sort of thing. Now, you know, we've got some very, very good figures on, on some aspects of biodiversity loss. So we know, for example, that the, the number of large predators like lions and, and elephants, the large herbivores like elephants and, and rhinos and so forth, they're pretty much in free fall. You know, there are, there is, there is, I, I, I don't have the figures to hand, Coleman, but you know, I'd be guessing that we've got a tenth as many lions at most that we had a century ago. And same for tigers and so forth. So those species are getting down to very, very low numbers. Uh, on top of that, we've seen quite a large number of extinctions uh, in recent decades. Now, not you know, when we come to an extinction event and saying what caused it, it's very hard sometimes to, to, to discern exactly what the cause is. But there are already some climate impacts. So, for example, the most recent mammal to become extinct in Australia is a small rodent that lived on an island on the Great Barrier Reef that became extinct pretty clearly as a result of climate change. You know, rising sea levels, uh, changing rainfall patterns meant that the, the water, the freshwater swamps that it was dependent upon um, were replaced with salt water. And so that species became extinct as a result. And that was, it was really common as, as, as little as 20 years ago. It's now, now extinct. So, you know, there are other species that have become extinct as a result of hunting, such as, you know, some of the rhinoceroses and so forth. There are others that have become extinct as a result of, you know, catastrophic habitat loss. So, you know, there, there's a fair bit of argument as to about what role climate is playing in that whole mix. You could say, is it 10%, is it 90%? That's up for debate. But the, I think the fact is biodiversity is declining uh, we are entering a phase of pretty significant extinction and, and climate change is playing some role in that. So let's move on then to the, um, the, the claim that I found uh, to be pretty misleading, which is that climate change is not making natural disasters worse. Um, oh, that, that is really misleading, Coleman. That is absolutely misleading. Yeah, let me, let me just, just tee it up for you in, in the way that he... So I, I found that to be very misleading as well. But the, the, his justification is that deaths from natural disasters have gone down in the past 100 years or so. So I, I give you that as... And just make of that what you will. Sure. Well, look, death, deaths are the ultimate negative outcome of natural disasters, and there are many factors that relate to the number of deaths we see, including human preparedness, 
to deal with this. But in terms of the disasters getting worse, we can see that is absolutely clearly happening. And, and one measure of that is the increase in rainfall intensity that we're seeing globally. This is one of the most well-attested uh, effects of climate change. And it's occurring because um, as the atmosphere warms, it holds more water vapour, it becomes more dynamic, and therefore rainfall is coming in more intense bursts. And particularly where you are, Colm, in the northeastern US is one area where the signal's very clear. Where there used to be decades ago, longer, more gentle periods of rainfall, there tends to be more downpours now, more intense downpours, and they tend to lead to flooding. So that is one example where you, you look at loss and damage and you can see very clearly that those uh, that that change in rainfall patterns is having an impact. Um, secondly, sea level rise. We're already seeing. We know that sea level rise unequivocally is caused by climate change, and we're seeing impacts of sea level rise all around the world now. Uh, in my home country of Australia, there's some pretty astonishing examples. Uh, the Pacific Islands are even worse where I where I work. In fact, I've got a friend who recently had to collect the bones of her. Uh, grandmother and great-grandmother, they've been washed out of a cemetery that had been stable for many, many years and uh, uh, the rising seas had eroded the graves away. So there's lots of lots of evidence for, for rising sea level rise as well. Uh, melting glaciers are causing more disasters, um, uh, particularly in the Himalayan region and in the Arctic. We're seeing the uh, not just glaciers, but the, um, the, the permafrost melting, which is causing problems for communities as well. And, you know, places like the Eastern Amazon, where we're seeing a drying trend that are leading to really severe droughts. And that's not to mention the megafires that we're now seeing. You know, I don't know what the American uh, read is on this, but, you know, we know that in Australia, we are seeing fires of unprecedented scale and ferocity. Just to give you an example, our last, uh, the Black Summer fires of 2019-2020, burnt 21% of Australia's temperate broadleaf forests. The largest loss of those forests due to a fire prior to that was just 2%. So I've seen a 10% increase in one single fire season. That's unprecedented. And you know we know why it's happening. It's the, the drying trend, it's the increased heat, and that is just uh, leading to these mega fires. Yeah, um, I, I know in the American case, we really think of fires just in California and maybe the, the Pacific Northwest. But um, you know, what, what Schellenberger says about this, at least in the case of California, is that, you know, basically this is a, not the result of climate change, or at the very least, it's less the result of climate change than of forest mismanagement, of, of the policy of not doing controlled burns often enough and letting the wood fuel accumulate so that these massive fires happen. And, and if anything, that's, the, that's a much bigger cause of the, the Californian wildfires than, than climate change. And e even here, you know, even if, if that's true, I, I think it's very misleading to say that climate change is not making it worse because that, and that, that's exactly the phrase he, he tends to use here because what people take away is just climate change is not affecting the issue at all rather than this much more nuanced claim at the end of it. But yeah, look, Coleman, all I can I, I'm not an expert on the Californian fires, so I hesitate to give you a view on it. Mm. But you know, what I've seen is that those their scrub fires by and large, you know, those houses, uh, you know, those communities that are being destroyed, at least in the southern part of California, uh, they're not really in forests, they're in, in scrub, you know. And 
I know if I can just revert to Australia to explain what's happening, mm. you know, those fires that we saw, those massive fires occurred after the two driest years ever recorded in southeastern Australia. And we had a, a hot, windy summer um, on top of that dryness and the fuel just, the fuel was ready to burn, you know, Coleman. It was, um, th there was, in the Australian case, nobody, absolutely nobody is disputing that it's related to climate change. I mean, the modelling that we've done shows that we could expect those conditions that led to the fire under natural circumstances, maybe once every 400 years. But when you add the impact of climate change, we can expect them more than once a decade in the current era. So, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that these mega fires, at least in Australia and probably elsewhere, have been have been really caused by climate change. Yeah, and this is a, one aspect that's interesting about the 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 worries about how bad things could get is when we summarize what can happen to the world in a number like 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius, what that doesn't capture is all of the other ways in which a changing climate, uh, you know, can can harm places like too much rainfall, too little rainfall. And then also the diversity, you know, the fact that the, the pain is born sort of in concentrated places and, and not in others. And so for, for one place to, for, for the temperature to rise, you know, three degrees Celsius in one place and one degree somewhere else might be worse than if it rose two degrees everywhere because they're just the, the the sort of compounding effects of of uh, these these changes. Well, that's that's right, Coleman. And you know, could I just say that the um, you know, if we look at climate, just think about where we are with climate change. You know, two decades ago, it was pretty hard to find really significant impacts of climate change. It was small things happening, but the you know, scientists were saying, by and large, the worst in the future. So now we've seen some of those worst impacts, but twenty years from now, it's going to be worse again, because the, the greenhouse gases take about 20 to 30 years to reach their full warming potential. So no matter what we do, it's going to be worse 20 years from now. Now, 40, 50 years from now, if we keep going the way we are, who knows what the situation is going to be like? We could be into absolutely catastrophic climate change. And as a geologist, that really worries me because I've seen evidence in the geological record of just how severe this problem can become, you know? I don't want to scare people with this, and I don't talk about it a lot, but there is a small chance that we'll see something like the end Permian conditions where, you know, the, the ocean currents slow down, the oceans lose oxygen, and then you get these sulphur bacteria that build up, and they can change things dramatically. They create a really toxic environment. We know it's happened in the past. I think the chances are small that it'll happen in the future, but I certainly don't want to take that chance. You know, the consequences are just too extreme. So I think it's clear eventually and sooner rather than later, we just, we, we need to completely get off coal. The, the world needs to just completely replace coal with uh, clean energy sources. And I think the cleanest we have and, and that are also quite cheap are, are wind, solar, and nuclear. And so I'm, I'm curious you know, I didn't, I think there was, there's some discussion of wind and solar in your book for sure, but almost, almost none of nuclear. Was it, was that a deliberate omission or do you, do you have a, 
preference between those three sources or what, what do you make of that? Sure. Well, look, wind and solar are already very cheap globally. And for, I think, about 70% of the planet, they're the cheapest way of generating electricity now. And within a few years, it'll be true for the whole planet. Um, nuclear is, it's sort of, in Australia, it doesn't really work. You know, we've got to have very large-scale nuclear plants to be cost-effective, at least in a, today. So, you know, dealing with 2,000 megawatt plants. And in Australia, we've only got 25 million people, you know, so... Um, the, the, that would have to be strategically placed. They also use a lot of water, and Australia is very dry. Um, so there's a number of reasons why nuclear isn't a really good fit for Australia. It's sort of a better fit for somewhere like China, where you've got very high demand and very high population density, and where the government will assume the entire risk of running the things. Um, so really, it didn't didn't even get to the the start of the race in Australia. It hasn't been a you know it's just never been a real option for us, which is why it wasn't in my book because my book was mostly about Australia. But I can talk about nuclear if you want. Yeah, I, I am. Um, I'm interested in it for a few, a few reasons. One is because there's this just this interesting economic fact that there there are huge fixed costs for building a nuclear plant, mm. and I, I'm curious if you agree with this, but what I've heard economists and, and, and other experts say is that it's more expensive than wind and solar in the short run because of the massive cost of building a plant. But if you zoom out to 100 years, 200 years, it's cheaper. Is that, is that right? It could be, but a nuclear plant's only going to run 40 years or so. Um, you've got to build a new one then. Um, you know, the, the best place to understand this common is France, you know, which, which in the 60s and 70s undertook a massive nuclear uh, building program. And I remember going to France a decade or so ago and realising there was no energy efficiency stuff going on. And, you know, that's for a good reason, because nuclear never stops producing. It's just high level. So the electricity is there, you might as well use it. You don't need to worry about energy efficiency. Um, but what's happened in France is they're madly building wind and solar now because a lot of those nuclear plants are coming to the end of their life and they're all coming to the end of their life at once. So they've realised they need a more diverse mix um, to make the energy system really work. And for them, the absolute cheapest options are wind and solar. So they're retiring some of the old nuclear and building more wind and solar. So, look, I think there's a role for nuclear. It's probably going to be quite a small, a niche role. You know, the... Nuclear has been declining as part of the energy mix for decades now globally. Um, you know, I think that really, in the, if you take the big picture and, and say, where, where's the future going to be? It's, it's all going to be wind and solar because that'll be the cheapest. And, you know, once we start in, um, on the hydrogen economy and start building electrolyzers at scale, um, you know, really that the wind and solar is going to challenge almost everything because you've got to, with hydrogen, you've got a fuel you can move around and use for a whole lot of purposes. Yeah, so you you have a a section of the book devoted to um, the next generation of airplanes. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Well, look, air, air travel is going to be the toughest nut to crack in terms of getting down to carbon neutrality. People are building electric airplanes right now. They're small ones because you, know, you can't have a battery driving a 737 or a, a Dreamliner or anything like that. It just doesn't work. The scale isn't there. Um, People are now building hydrogen aircraft. They're starting to, uh, and in fact, one of them that was built recently, I think in the US, uh, crashed, sadly, but, but hydrogen is being used as a fuel. The trouble is it's not a very dense fuel, so it's a, there's difficulties there. The best option seems to be 
um, it's a kind of a high density biofuel, a fuel that's or an e-fuel that's a fuel that's made from uh, hydrogen, made through wind and solar. So you generate electricity using wind and solar. You put it through a water bath. You generate hydrogen through electrolysis, and then you use that hydrogen uh, through a process to create the equivalent of crude oil. But it's very very pure. It doesn't have any of the any of the contaminants like sulfur in it. It's a great jet fuel, um, but it's expensive at the moment. I should just remind your listeners, Coleman, that you know, during the Second World War, the Luftwaffe flew on butanol made from potatoes. So we know we can make biofuels with a high density uh, in a way that can, can run an aircraft. The problem is cost. And as any of these solutions like e-fuels scale up, they get cheaper. So I think in the long term, e-fuels are where we're going to be with, uh, with, um, with aircraft, with jet travel. And I should just mention as well that the, you know, the, that e-fuel initiative through um, carbon engineering came out of Harvard and is now being developed in British Columbia. So it's a North American initiative. So uh, I guess I, I also have a question about geothermal, which was uh, really brought to my attention by Jamie Beard, who was a speaker at the latest round of, of TED Talks, who has this really strange and exciting idea of turning oil drilling operations into geothermal plants, which, you know, send a liquid down into the earth and, and uh, leverage the geothermal energy and then repurposing the people who work in oil drilling for that, for that purpose as coal is phased out and, or as oil drilling is phased out. So what, what do you make of the possibility of geothermal energy? I was a big backer of geothermal uh, 15 years ago, you know, um, and we lost that bet in Australia. And the reason why geothermal just became too expensive in Australia is that every well you drill has a different geological context, slightly different, and you don't really learn a lot in terms of economies of scale if you drill maybe 100 wells. But if you make a billion solar panels or 10 billion solar panels and make a million wind turbines, you sure as hell learn a lot about shortcuts in manufacturing and just efficiency in manufacturing. And that's why wind and solar have got so cheap, because we're making them by the millions and billions, the individual units. And as you do that, they just get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So that's, that's the nature of mass production. And it's really hard for me to imagine any of those other technologies that don't have that asset of, of mass production ever catching up with wind and solar. They just seem to have won the race hands down. Um, uh, Coleman, I, you know, it's it's... Really, they're so far ahead now, it's hard for me to imagine any other technology catching up in terms of price. So uh, I guess there's also electric vehicles to talk about. I mean, Tes Tesla's just having a massive boom right now in America, and uh, I don't know if, if that's the same in Australia. But um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about electric vehicles and the role they're going to play? Sure. Well, you know, we, we will eventually electrify everything. There's no doubt about that. And for... You know, the kind of, for motor cars, the sort of stuff we all drive as individuals, uh, electrification is going to be the future. I mean, there's a few, the Japanese are still making some hydrogen fuel cars, but I don't think they're going to be competitive. That technology is just so far ahead. And again, mass production is what's going to assist those, the, the manufacture of batteries and cars. As you mass produce, everything gets cheaper. So Tesla are still relatively expensive, but there's some major manufacturers in China, which have got a scalability that's kind of unbelievable, really, on their side, that I think are going to push electric vehicles globally in a big way. My suspicion is that, you know, the, the, the kind of the petrol fuel cars, 
with the, I drive a hybrid, but the one I drive now is the last uh, last petrol driven car I'm ever going to buy. And, and that's true for most of my friends too. We're, we're right on the brink of that change. And electric vehicles are just so superior in so many ways from cost to the fact you can fuel them at home using your solar panels, um, at least in Australia. Um, that, that I just, I think they're going to be, uh, you know, they're going to be unstoppable. But it's a different different issue, Coleman, when it comes to heavy vehicles, heavy transport, like trucks and so forth. We might see more hydrogen use there. Yeah. So I I realize I have an, another question about the sort of Jamie Beard's idea. You know, in in America, we've had this problem of the past, I say, twenty years of factories closing down and leaving whole towns that built their culture around a fact factory um, sort of never the same hollowed out where the, the economic rationale for uh, outsourcing that job makes perfect sense. It's cheaper to get it done in China or India and there's just no economic reason. It's just, you know, economics 101 to, to outsource in that way, but it has this consequence that's disproportionately borne uh, by, by certain people. And this is linked to our mental health crisis and our opioid crisis where people don't just necessarily move and find new work when, when, they're, when, they're, when they're put out of work. And so I'm curious as the, and this is not exactly your, your expertise, but I'm curious if you think about this, you know, what's going to happen to rank and file employees uh, of the coal industry and, and all of these industries that we need to sort of end or, or phase out. Um, yeah. Look, I, it's something I think about a lot, Coleman. Um, you know, we've got the same issue in Australia of, um, regions which are very heavily dependent upon coal. Um, you know, in Australia, we're, we're looking at overseas uh, initiatives in this area. So one very interesting one is called the German Coal Compromise, where the German government has got together with the coal industry and all of its employers and local government to guarantee that not one single job will be lost as a result of the transition. They're going to close all their coal, but there's a lot of work to be done in remediating coal mines there's a lot of new industries that can be built, such as pumped up hydro in old coal mines, uh, tourism, and so forth. So they've, they've taken a particular approach um, where, where the federal government or the German government's pouring money into that. In Australia, we've just done the calculation of what it would cost to um, give every one of our coal workers a salary for life, regardless of whether they're digging up coal or not. And the costs are small compared with lots of other transition costs. So... I think that we'll see, at least in Australia and, and Europe, a move towards this, um, this just transition where we take care of those communities, give them opportunities, uh, uh, really have deep discussions with them about what they want in terms of their future, and then finance that transition. So this is something that, that is um, it, it's kind of a very top of mind issue at the moment for people in Europe and in Australia, and I'm confident we can find ways through that. Um, it's just part of a good democracy to take care of everyone. And uh, that, that needs to happen as, as, as the economy changes. It's interesting. Translating that to an American context, I struggle to see the, the, the federal administration that makes something like that work federally. Just because, yeah. you know, like on the left, it's 
coal miners are not particularly popular or or sympathetic victims. And on the right, welfare is not particularly popular or sympathetic mm. po- policy. So it's it's that might have to happen at the state level if it happened at all. But it does seem yeah. like something like that is is needed. Yeah, but why would you see it as welfare? <laughs> it's welfare for the whole of the society, isn't it? To make sure that people don't get disadvantaged and addicted to drugs. You'll pick up the bill anyway, Coleman, whether it's in the hospitals or, you know, <laughs> or in the uh, crime or whatever, um, we might as well just get on the front foot and, and treat people justly and fairly and, and openly as we go forward with this. Yeah. So another, another topic I think you touch in the book is uh, whether eating less meat or becoming vegetarian or vegan should be a focus of the, the environmental movement. Um, this is definitely a, a hot topic for many people. Uh, I've been a vegetarian before, but I'm not anymore. Uh, so, what, what do you what do you make of becoming a vegetarian for this reason? Well, if you look at the figures, you know something like twenty percent in very round figures of the greenhouse gas emissions come from what's called AFLOU, agriculture, forestry, and other land use. Eighty percent come from the burning of fossil fuels. So, when you're talking about meat, it's part of that. 20 to 25% AFLOU. So that's important. It's still a quarter of emissions. And, you know, doing what you can to, 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 to avoid emissions is great. Um, I, I just point out that some meat is much more emissions intensive than others. So beef is quite emissions intensive, but chickens aren't, you know, neither is pork. So, uh, and some vegetable products are very emissions intensive. If you're, you know, eating soybeans or, or, or any crops that are grown on uh, land from it's where rainforest is being cleared, that's pretty emissions intensive. And even corn growing, where you're taking losing carbon from the soil in places like the US, is emissions intensive. So my, my view of it is, you know, we're, we're best to, to try to have a low emissions diet overall. So take into account all the food you eat and uh, just is, it, to the best you can, um, you know, educate yourself about where the emissions come from and try to limit them. So, you know, I look, I'm, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, but I do eat much less meat than I did, uh, say, a decade or so ago. And I try to eat meat that's from the less emissions intensive aspects of the meat production system. Yes. Yeah, so is, there, is there something like a, like a low carbon footprint diet that anyone has? Because I, I don't really see people emphasizing the soybean and corn no, as as as. Look, I, there are people, and there's you know there's a whole uh, sustainable and regenerative agriculture sector out there where people are uh, working you know small holdings, um, uh, growing uh, growing things without chemicals and herbicides and pesticides, which is better for the soil and gives you better soil carbon retention. So there there, there are moves um, in that direction, but uh, you know I think it'll be a while before we're getting the bulk of our food from those more sustainable practices. Yeah, uh, I guess the, this also highlights an issue, which is the, you know whether the climate cure is going to come from sort of one by one from the bottom up, um, you know, just efforts changing our lifestyles and so forth. Um, basically, you know, making sacrifices or or lifestyle changes on the individual level, or governments getting their shit together, basically. Yeah, look, it's, um, that's, a, that's a, yeah, it's a great point. And, um, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry would love you to think that it was all about what you do, 
Um, you know, and there's an element to that. Of course, we all have to live our lives as sustainably as we can if we want to deal with the problem. But ultimately, it's the regulatory framework that's really important, the role that government plays, the role that financing plays, uh, you know, the way carbon is accounted in industries, all of that is critically important. So while I think we should all uh, do what we can to limit our carbon intake, we should see that as an act of climate leadership and urge our governments on to acts of climate leadership because that's what it's all about in the end. We need to move together as a society. Government's an integral part of that. Business is a big part of it. So um, we've got to change the whole system, and we can't do that just by changing what we eat, for example, or what we as individuals drive. You know. So I, I guess my last question here is, to what extent is there a legitimate trade-off between fighting climate change and um, you know, advancing our economy. Is there, um, is it, is it ever, is there anywhere where you really worry that it's possible to go too far with our efforts to fight climate change and end up uh, stunting our economy as a result? Or is, do you think that this is, this is just kind of a false, uh, a false choice? That's definitely a false choice. I mean, you know, when you see the, you can you can study economies today that have reduced emissions pretty dramatically and, and have a look at the impact on, on the economy. You know, basically it's zero. The you know, economy is doing better in those places. Um, you know, just think about the world you're creating. So you're creating a world where we're not dependent upon imports of oil from, you know, the Middle East or whatever. Um, that, that's saving money. You've got cleaner, more efficient processes. Again, that's saving money. Um, all of the, the consequences of, of dirty processes like poor health and, and greater hospitalisation rates and these sort of things, they all disappear. So you're saving money there, you know. So I, I think there's absolutely no doubt, you, you know, you're creating a better, more efficient, more prosperous world as you, as you move forward. The big thing is you've got to take care of the people who are already engaged in those old dirty industries and who might be, for whatever reason, unable to retrain or move on. So that's the, that's, the, that's the challenge, but that's that's the role of government. That's what government should be doing, is looking after the people, looking after their electors. So, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, we, we, we don't need fear that we have to give anything up as we move to that cleaner, better world. All right, well, on that note, this has been a great conversation. Uh, let me just plug your book one more time. There's a lot there that we didn't cover. This is, it's called The Climate Cure, Solving the Climate Emergency in the Era of COVID-19. So I urge you all to go pick that up. And uh, thank you so much, Tim, for your time. Hope, hope to have you back at some point. Thanks, Colm. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, that, that note of optimism is really important. I think for all of your listeners, uh, just know that we can do this and we'll end up better off. Mm. Thank you. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.